Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you this morning, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the middle of our Bibles. And before we look at our passage, let me remind us. Remind us that Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, the world hated me and they will hate you. He warned his followers that parents and brothers and sisters would turn them over to the authorities and some of them would be killed for his namesake. Paul told Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The early church was born out of suffering and pain and exile, even martyrdom. So no surprise that we have a a suffering and crucified Messiah. In fact, that was his heritage. He was born into it, you could say. He was among a long line of godly persecuted saints, like the prophets of old who were ignored and scorned and some sawn in two. Opposition to God's people is as old as a serpent in the garden trying to hunt for souls. But it's certainly not limited to Bible times, whether Old or New Testament. My copy of that old book, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, has over 300 pages of martyrdom stories. And that stuff didn't end when Fox put down his pen in the 16th century. It keeps happening. And sometimes it's getting worse, not better. According to Open Doors, that's a ministry that tracks and reports on Christian persecution globally. Just Google Open Doors. There's a wealth of information there. They say currently one in 12 Christians in this world live in a land where their Christian faith is illegal, forbidden, or punished. Open Doors reports that in 2018, thus far, 3,066 Christians have been killed. 1,252 have been abducted. 1,020 were raped. And 793 churches were attacked. And remember that persecution isn't just physical. It can be verbal or political or legal or cultural and social. Hence, it's not something foreign to Christians in the U.S., not completely, despite our relatively high level of freedom and protection compared to other places around the world. Persecution happens in our land in workplaces and in, in classrooms and on playgrounds every day. It's also important for us to remember that it may get worse even here. In days ahead, our country may become more antagonistic toward Christians. And yet we do have it relatively easy today. Maybe not in a decade or two or three, 
But for most of us, we have it relatively easy compared with other parts of the world. And so it's important for us to remember that the persecuted suffering of God's people is, by and large, the norm. It's important for us to remember that God's people suffered long ago and still today all around the world. And that's especially important as we come to a certain section of Psalm 119. Verses 81 to 96 today, where the author has really come to the end of his rope as he faces more lies and threats and now even possible death. And so he feels like he's on the brink, both physically and emotionally. So what will he do on the brink? What will he teach us from the brink? What will he model for us for when we face persecution of any kind, small or big? How can he teach us to pray for the persecuted church around the world? And for that matter, what can we learn from him and apply to our own lives when we're going through suffering of any kind, not just the persecuted kind? What will we Say to God when we feel like we're on the brink. Maybe not because of threats or opposition, but simply because life is hard and breathtakingly hard sometimes. So let's read our 16 verses for today, starting in Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your testimonies. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pits for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I've not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep your testimonies, keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment, is exceedingly broad. You'll remember that Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem, each eight verses beginning with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Our English Bibles don't bear that out very well, but most translations do mark out each eight verses with a new Hebrew letter as a a heading for a new section or a new stanza we've been calling them. 
And we've been taking two sections or two stanzas per week in recent weeks. And today we come to the middle, the middle of these 22 stanzas, number 11 and number 12. And these two together go together by way of contrast. This is something like a hinge for this majestic psalm. The first of our two stanzas, so verses 81 to 88, if you're looking down in your Bibles, this is the lowest point of the psalm. The author has written about enemies before, but not this much and not with this much intensity. But after this lowest point, there's a turning point. And so the second stanza for this week, verses 89 to 96, make a happy, hopeful turn. And this is one of the most solid, most confident of all the sections of Psalm 119. Now, to be clear, uh, it won't be all puppies and daisies and sunshine from here on out in the rest of Psalm 119 and weeks ahead, we'll continue to see struggle and opposition and doubt and need and all that. But the turning point right in the middle is undeniable and is no doubt purposeful uh, in our author's mind. Charles Spurgeon observed this and he worded it so well. So writing about the first of our two sections, he said... This portion of this gigantic psalm sees the psalmist in extremis, in extreme difficulty. His enemies have brought him to the lowest condition of anguish and depression, yet he's faithful to the law and trustful in his God. The octave is the midnight of the psalm in his very dark and dreary. After this, in the next section, verse 89 and following, the tone will become more cheerful. But meanwhile, it should comfort us to see such an eminent servant of God so harshly abused by the ungodly because it shows us that evidently in our own persecutions, nothing out of the ordinary has happened to us. Well said. So we'll take each stanza on its own this week, one at a time. The first stanza we might call coming to the end and the second we might call recovering confidence. We'll spend more time on the first of those stanzas only because once we get through all that dreary work in hard circumstances, uh, the Bible drips sweet with honey and we can take it down quite quickly. I've got three points under each of these main headings for each of the stanzas. So here's the first stanza coming to the end. And the first of three themes to note under this heading would be devastating circumstances. Devastating circumstances. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? That word repeated, verse 81 and verse 82, long for in English. It probably doesn't quite capture the intensity of the Hebrew. It's not that he's longing for, like he's reaching for it. It's, it's literally to fail. His soul is failing, and his eyes are failing. 
racking the scriptures to find comfort for his soul. Verse 83, he says, I've become like a a wineskin in the smoke. In the days long before plastic bottles or Tupperware, people carried around their liquid in animal skins. And at the end of the day, when you weren't using that wineskin anymore, you hung it up in your tent, in a tent where there was a fire and where there was very poor ventilation. And so with time... A wineskin would become dried, blackened, cracked, useless. And that's how this man says he feels. He feels dried up and cracked and useless like a wineskin hanging in the smoke. Why? Well, because the insolent, those who are just blatantly against God, they're against him. Viciously so. They have dug pitfalls for me. They're out to get them. Verse 86, they persecute him with falsehood. But not just verbal attacks. Again, they're trying to kill him. So verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. His life is in the balance. It's on the line. Death is close. And it may be soon. Notice he's telling God what's going on. This is a prayer, isn't it? He's going to God in prayer with his trouble and his worries and his feelings. He's telling God what God already knows. Why? Well, in part because he's going to build upon telling this to God. He's going to make requests to God about this stuff. And he's even going to ask God some questions about it. We'll get to that in just a bit. But, but even now we can say this is what we call lament. This is lament. In the Bible we have this category called lament. And almost all the Psalms have an element of lament in them. And 70 of the 150 Psalms can actually be classified as lament Psalms. Lament in the Bible is often written with extreme Language like a wineskin hanging in a tent. It uses hyperbole, like in Psalm 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Now that's hyperbole, but don't forget, just because your teenagers abuse hyperbole, That hyperbole does have a point. It's exaggeration to make a point, right? And that's what this man is doing. He's saying, I cry all the time. It's like I flood my bed with tears, like my couch is drenched in my tears. The man in Psalm 119 says similar things. They've dug pits for me. Not literal pits, but just about so. I mean, they're out to get them. They're out to get them sneakily. And every step feels like it could be his last. So he tells God. Lament is simply casting our burdens on the Lord, knowing that he cares for us. Rather than just trying to solve it. Rather than just planning a scheme to fight back. 
Rather than just get a better alarm system or another gun. And some of those things might be worth doing if your life is in, in danger. But don't ever forget this one, the most important of all. Pray. He prays to God. He tells God what's going on and tells God how he feels about it. That's lament. But lament goes further than just describing to God what's going on. He asks God questions. Secondly, there are desperate questions. Lament psalms often ask questions of God. And here in Psalm 119, that's what we see, three questions. Verse 82, I ask, when will you comfort me? And then two in verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Notice the emphasis on how long and when. An emphasis on timing. Implied is that he wonders out loud to God whether these trials have gone on too long. When will they come to an end? Lord, is there any end in sight? He feels like it's a desperate situation. Listen to the repetition of how long that we find in Psalm 13. And we'll sing these words later on this morning. Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? It's in the Bible over and over again. Now, I want to give you one of my typical on the one hand and on the other hand speeches. Seems like every sermon at some point we kind of need to do this. And here, when we talk about lamenting to God, I, I need to approach it from two angles. So, on the one hand, I, of course, want to encourage lament to you. I want to lament that most of us don't lament enough or frequently enough. It's surely a sign of our relative ease as Americans in the 21st century and probably a sign of our spiritual immaturity that lament is so foreign to many of us. Again, I say lament is all through the Psalms. The, the Bible's prayer book, the Bible's song book, it's loaded with lament in a way that probably is not reflected in our personal prayers, not in the same way. Lament is certainly not reflected in most American churches singing together on Sunday morning. Years ago, Carl Truman penned an essay called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Here's what he says. Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. The human condition is a poor one, and Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country 
should know this. He goes on, a diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation, which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalistic street party, a theologically incorrect in a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. Has an unconscious belief that Christianity is or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness? Has that silently corrupted the content of our worship? Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over the decades, like China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as the normal Christian experience. Sadly, I think most professing Christians in the U.S. today seem to want a church experience which distracts them from their problems for an hour on Sunday rather than one that gives voice to their problems before God. So I want to encourage us to continue to lament and to sing lament and to pour our hearts out before the Lord in prayer. That was a a long version of on the one hand. Here's the other. On the other hand, I want to make clear what lament is and is not, lest your attempts to lament before God slip into something less helpful, less biblical, and possibly even sinful. A classic case of this is the story of Job. He starts out humbly wrestling before God with faith and his hard circumstances, and it's good at first. But eventually, Job talks like he wants to take God to court, and he wants to put God on the stand, and he knows in advance the verdict if he could only get a just judge. And that is not good, and God tells him in the end. Biblical lament, unlike Job's later lament, is not accusations against God. It's wrestling with acceptance before God. Biblical lament asks questions of God without charging him of wrong. Biblical lament asks questions of God while assuming he's in control and he can intervene. And he does have a timetable, though it's mysterious to us. Honesty before God is not the only goal or the supreme mark of maturity for the Christian. It seems like people my age on down, they love honesty with God. They love to be messy with God. And of course we should be honest. And of course when we're messy, we should acknowledge it. However, there are some things that just need fixing. There is a time to put your hand over your mouth and not speak and to not impugn the character of God. Biblical biblical lament will also seek to do more than lament. It will ask God for help. Biblical lament will seek to turn a corner, to feel differently, to think differently than just to lament. So this man here says in verse 86 
They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. He's looking to God for help, not just complaining to God. In verse 88, he says, in your steadfast love, give me life. He's counting on God's faithfulness of old and his promises to his people long ago. And he wants God to help so that he can keep the testimonies of God's mouth. Biblical lament will go on as best it can to keep plodding along in obedience and faithfulness even while it struggles. And so the third part of this first section, we could call determined commitments. Determined commitments. Biblical lament is not acting like a morose, depressed poet. It's doing something. So right, along all, right alongside all his concerns and questions and requests are some firm commitments. It's what we've called in other weeks resolve. We see it so much in this psalm. So still, amidst the persecution, notice this, we're still in the, the dark psalm or the, the dark stanza of this psalm. Still amidst persecution and facing lies and even death threats, still feeling at the end of his rope and still with unanswered questions, all throughout he's committing himself before God to not forget God's word, to not forsake God's word, to keep God's word, and to hope in God's word, even to search God's word. Again, you see verse 82, my eyes fail. I see words go blurry because I'm searching for your promise while I ask you to give me comfort. Not just a quick prayer, not just a Bible verse to chase away the dark feelings. Now this is a man who knows that there's comfort in God's word and he hasn't quite found enough yet and so he ransacks it. He keeps going. And sometimes that's the best you can do. Sometimes that's the best you can do to open the Bible and to stay in it. Sometimes it's the best you can do to say, Lord, I don't get what you're up to, but I'm not going to go astray. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep on keeping on in the sadness and in the grief and in the pain, in, in the bewilderment even. Yes, you tell God. Yes, you ask for his help. You ask him to intervene, but, but don't otherwise coast. Search the word. Don't forsake the word. Hope in the word. Well, now we come to the second stanza. Recovering confidence. Just glance down and see with just a glance in verses 89 to 96 that they are indeed more hopeful and confident. There indeed has been a turning point. And once again, let's listen to Charles Spurgeon, our old friend, Pastor Chuck. He said of this section, the tone is now more joyful, for experience has given the sweet singer a glad theme. After tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps ashore and stands upon a rock. God's word is not fickle or uncertain. It is settled and determined. Having quoted Spurgeon twice this morning, it's probably a good time for me to tell you one of my 
favorite experiences of having pastored here for 15 years now. It was when a high school student, I think he was a freshman at the time, came up to me after one Sunday and he said, man, that Spurgeon said some good quotes. I thought, yeah, that's one way to put it. He didn't think he was saying quotes, like, you know, hey, wait till they quote this someday. But he is eminently quotable, and that's why preachers frequently quote him. Now notice, the, the Psalm 119 man, even after the turning point, again, I said it, it's not all roses and puppies and unicorns or something his life is still hanging in the balance even in the second section verse 95 the wicked lie in wait to destroy me in verse 94 he's he's saying i am yours save me he needs saving so that's still there but by and large the perspective has changed the emphases have changed He has recovered a measure of confidence now. And apparently it was some meditation on the word and the world that got him, well, more confident. The word and the world, he he says, are settled. And therefore, those truths settle him. They steady him. So again, three points under this section. There's a settled word, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is settled. That doesn't mean that God gave all his words to us at once in one big package. But it does mean that he's not making this stuff up on the go. It's not like he's, you know, he was giving us Bible as he went along. It's not like the plan played out as he felt like it should at that moment. No, the plan is settled. The word has been settled. It was settled in heaven in eternity's past. It's fixed. It's not like books which go out of print and you can't get. It's not like websites that disappear. It's not like Elon Musk, who one day can be daydreaming about the next greatest invention and the next day uh, be out $20 million because he sent a stupid tweet. I'm not sure that's a great example, but there it is. (laughs) Here's a better one. Jesus said in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot in Hebrew, not one jot, not one tittle, not the smallest bit of a Hebrew letter. Not one of those of the Old Testament will pass away until all is accomplished. God's word is settled. And so his plan, his plan is sure. When it looks like the world is winning, when it looks like the pitfalls are everywhere, when it seems like The lies and the maligning are just too much to be right and to be fair and to be real. Well, you can remember that God's word, and hence his plan, is settled. It's fixed. It's sure. There's a settled word. 
Secondly, there's a steady world. A steady world, verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. The world is steady, at least from one vantage point. Oh, there's a time, yes, to ponder the earth's volatility, the volatility of earthquakes and volcanoes, and, and those can have their own lessons about God's power or that this world is under a curse and it's groaning, yes. But here in Psalm 119, the observation for now is, is the stability of the earth, the steadiness of the world that God made. He spoke it into existence, and he fixed it on its axis and set it in its orbit. And if you just think of the earth's rotation and its orbit, it's astounding. Every day the earth is spinning at about 1,000 miles per hour. That's crazy. And we're not flying off. Yeah, because of gravity. He thought of that too. The Earth's orbit around the sun, it's hurling through space at about 67,000 miles per hour. You get that? We're spinning 1,000 miles an hour, and we're traveling 67,000 miles per hour. And we're not crashing into things. Oh, I know occasionally a comet comes our way, but, but the earth is fixed. The Lord put it in its place, and it hasn't spun off into Mars or Pluto or the next galaxy. So apparently God is managing things just fine, isn't he? Whatever you think these days of American politics, you can't think that they're peaceful. Whatever you think about the Kavanaugh saga that's going on in this world and how hopeless it seems any outcome might be, we don't need to wonder whether God is in control and has purposes, even if mysterious purposes. God is faithful to all generations and in all parts of creation are his servants, even Pharaoh, even Pilate. Some pain and some bad people, that doesn't mean he's lost control. And so thirdly, there's a settling word. There's a settling word. That's the rest of our section this morning, verses 92 to 96. Look how settled he is because of his meditation on the steady world and the sure word. Verse 92, he says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The word is enough. He's settled. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you gave me life. Verse 95, the, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me still, but I consider your testimonies. I muse upon them. I meditate upon them. I, I consider, I evaluate, I look, I look, I look. 
Verse 96, I've seen a limit to all perfection. Everything out there, none of it's perfect. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. Everything human has limitations. It's not forever. It won't do everything. As Ecclesiastes so powerfully and so, so thoroughly teaches us. But here, God's word isn't like that. It's the only thing like that in this world. God's word is perfect and complete and limitless and freeing. So there's an example of a turning point. This man, in devastating circumstances, with desperate questions before the Lord, he calls out to God. He keeps his commitments before God. Apparently something happened, whether it took a long time or a short time, between one stanza and another. Something clicked. As he gave thought to the settled word and the steady world, he knew if God's word is sure, and if God is sovereign over all his creation, then that is enough to steady his mind and his heart. We don't have to wonder. We know this. God's word tells us that the word is sure, and this, word, this world is steady. We don't have to know everything to get a little bit of comfort. You don't have to have all your questions answered. I don't know what God is up to in your particular season of suffering. I don't know why you had to go through X, Y, or Z. I don't know exactly how it made you more godly or caused you to cling to him more. Maybe it feels right now like it didn't. Well, I don't know. All I know is God's word is sure. His world is steady. And with those two promises, those two truths alone, you can be a little bit more settled and a little bit more steady before the Lord, even when things are shaky and scary. Now, before we close, I want to ask, so where is Jesus in all this? We're Christians here, right? Most of us are. We believe that Christ is the centerpiece and the, the whole focal point of the Bible, and really the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. We believe that the Old Testament promised and foreshadowed the one to come, and the New Testament reveals him to us. So how shall we make our way from Psalm 119 to Jesus? Let me suggest three ways, because I couldn't pick my favorite. I couldn't settle on just one. Here are three ways we move from Psalm 119 to Jesus. Number one, Jesus knew lament, and he prayed lament better and more deeply than anyone ever has. In the garden, before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he said that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death and he sweat as though drops of blood. It was from the cross just before his death, in his dying breath, he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That is lament. That is a lamenting question drawn from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Savior knew suffering. He knew godly lament and trust. 1 Peter 2 tells us that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so, yes, he, he didn't just come close to death. He died. And he went through death. His death wasn't the final word. There's resurrection and eternal life and victory and exaltation. Jesus knew lament to its deepest hell and to its highest heaven. He knows lament all the way through and through. Another way, secondly, another way we can make our way from Psalm 119 to Jesus is that in his lament and forsakenness and death and resurrection, Jesus wasn't just dying and wasn't just dying as an example for us, though he was doing that. He was paying for our sins. The just or the righteous for the unjust or the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He died for us. He didn't deserve death. We do. The day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through him, through Jesus. And we need this. We need this even as Christians. We need it today not just when we first got saved. We need it going through Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is pretty good at reminding me how far I have to go, how prayerless I am, how selfish and self-focused I am. Psalm 119 is a lofty example for us, yes, and one we should try to model and live out and get closer to. But Psalm 119 is also pretty good at driving me helpless and hopeless to a Savior who was the Psalm 119 man better than I ever will be, even better than this man who wrote these words, who confessed himself to be a sinner. Jesus had no sin. Jesus is all our hope. So Christian, if, you hear, if you're here this morning and you say, I'm not at the turning point. I've been praying for that for a long time. I don't feel like I can turn. I'm still in lament. And there's, no matter how much I recount truth or pray for him to help, I'm still in lament. Well, good news, Jesus lamented for you and died for your sins. And so if all you can do right now is hang on to him, that's what you do. And if you're not a Christian here, please don't hear any of this as a Christian version of an emotional pep talk. 
like Christians took some Oprah thinking and simply put some religious stuff to it. This isn't us trying to feel better about ourselves. This isn't us trying to have a better perspective on life so that life goes better for us. First and foremost, what you need to hear today is that we don't have any hope unless Jesus dies for our sins and was raised on the third day. And he did. He did die. He is raised. And he does offer forgiveness to any and all who will simply believe what he says to be true and ask for his mercy on account of his cross. You can pray for that today. And we pray you would. Now thirdly, how shall we make our way from Psalm 119 to Jesus? Well, when we're thinking about a settled word and a steady world, we Christians can and should think more specifically than just God as the one behind the steady world and the settled word. It's Christ specifically, isn't it? Colossians 1 tells us that it's by him, Jesus, that all things were made in heaven and on earth. And all things were created through him and for him. And he holds all things together. What Psalm 119 talks about regarding God's creation has the second person of the Trinity specifically behind it. John 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word of God was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is what became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So we, as we think about a settled Word and a steady world, can think specifically about Christ and all that He's done, and all that He's shown, and all that He said, and all that He upholds. And so if the man of Psalm 119, the original author, if he could find such encouragement in a settled word, in a steady world, how much more can we, when we know the person, when we know what he's done, when we know that he reigns? And how much more honestly and more hopefully can we still today Pray with lament when things genuinely hurt and we genuinely are bewildered. We can pray that. In a minute, we'll sing it. Let's pray first. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were the one forsaken for us, one who not only came close to death but took on death and conquered death. Lord, we thank you that death was a payment for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you, you are the embodiment of that settled word. You are the one who steadies this world. You are on your throne, reigning now and forever. And one day that will be more visible. And one day you will stop all sin and injustice in this world. And until then, Lord... We thank you, you've given us some songs to sing in which we cry out, we ask for your help, we acknowledge before you our hurt, our sorrow, 
our grief and our questions. And we ask you to work as we commit it all to you. We pray this in your strong and saving name, Jesus. Amen.